0: Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Thanks very much, Ian. I still remember very fondly um, that dinner that we shared in Sydney uh, back in 2017, um, not too long before I left Australia. Boy, with all those things that I do in your introduction, it's no wonder that I'm feeling tired. Well, it's good to be with you again, Uh, and we are in Luke chapter 9 today. You remember we were in there last week, and so I would like you to turn to your Bibles um, for a moment. Uh, We haven't read from Luke chapter 9. Could someone just give me an indication? You haven't read from Luke chapter 9 yet, have you? Is that correct? Right, I'm seeing shaking heads, thank you. So let's just turn there, and um, and we will read from Luke chapter 9. It's the end of Luke chapter 9. And we'll begin in verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, "Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them?" But Jesus turned and rebuked them. then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still, another said, "I will follow you, Lord, but first let me back. Let me go back and say goodbye to my family." Jesus replied, "No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God." I've been a Christian for thirty-five years, approximately, and by now I feel—I I, I can't say I'm a confident about a lot of things—but I feel pretty confident in saying. That the greatest problem in my life is that I am not always aware of who Jesus is. I, I wouldn't have said that was a problem, that was the main problem in my life 35 years, um, 35 years ago, or 20 years ago, or perhaps even 10 years ago. Now, that might sound an odd thing to say, and we'll spend the rest of the sermon unpacking it, but let me give you an example. Remember years ago, and I'll be rather quick. Um, with this because um, I could flesh it out more but here's the basic example this was I was at seminary in Dallas back in 2002 and we were getting ready to leave and I had been struggling with um, a certain thing for a while and you know it was really uh, just kind of something it was a thorn in the flesh and I just wanted to be rid of it it wasn't anything immoral or anything like that but it was just a struggle that was Um, weighing on me, and I remember talking to one of um, my friends, a good friend who was also a professor of mine, John Hanna, who used to uh, teach church history. And he said to me, well, I'll meet up with you once a week, and we can talk about it if you want. And so that's what we did. We met up once a week um, over lunch or something like that for an hour or so, and we would talk about this particular struggle I was having and, and various things related to it. And I remember at one point he said, after a few times of meeting, he said, I don't really know what to say, but I know that the answer is Jesus. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background. Firstly, at what point I am in my life, I, I'm about to complete a Ph.D. I've had eight years of seminary I um, and can read the Greek New Testament from back to front. Um I, I um supposedly I know quite a bit. And yet when he says to me that the answer is Jesus, internally I'm scratching my head and saying I don't understand. I have I, I have no idea what Jesus has to do with this particular thing that I'm struggling with. I know that Jesus forgives me. I know that he fig- I know that he saves me. I know that he's secured my eternity. I know that he died for my sins. He's fixed the sin problem. He's given me, he's reconciled me to God. But what does he have to do with this particular thing that I'm struggling with right now? Now maybe you, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you see Jesus as someone who deals with the sin problem. He, he reconciles you to God. He makes everything well with your soul. He secures your eternal salvation and eternal life. But that's effectively it. On a day-to-day basis, with the real practical life problems that you struggle with, Jesus, well, he could provide some comfort, but really he's not the answer to those problems, is he? He's the answer to my eternal problem. And see, after I, I now know that looking back, my problem 20 years ago was that I didn't fully appreciate who Jesus was. And that's always my problem. If there is a problem in my life, it is that problem above all problems. And we saw last week that the thrust of this chapter, Luke chapter 9, has been just that. The disciples' inability to appreciate who Jesus is. And that doesn't change in the remaining verses. But now these remaining verses suddenly get ramped up in terms of their relevance. And you may have probably picked that up as we made our way through them. Jesus is approached by two men who want to follow him. They want to sign up with the 12 disciples and follow Jesus around learning from him, but they don't understand what's involved. The first man says, I will follow you wherever you go. So Jesus lets them know that whatever will entail. Foxes and dens have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. In other words, if you want to follow me, don't expect to go home at night. Jesus then invites a second man. This man doesn't approach Jesus, but he's standing by and Jesus invites him, follow me. But the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own dead. In other words, if you want to put it off, if you want to procrastinate, fine, but consider yourself spiritually dead. Then there's a third man um, listening on, and, and, and by this point, he's probably thinking, well, I now know what it takes to follow Jesus. So he says, I will follow you, and adds, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Not good enough, Jesus says. No one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, a number of things are striking about Jesus' responses. And I'm guessing that you probably felt at least one of them, if not three or four of them. The first is that they seem so harsh. And that makes us uncomfortable. The second is that Jesus really could do with a PR person, you'd think. You'd think he'd be glad to have followers sign up. He could have said to the first man, look, it's not like we'll be out under the stars every night. I do actually have a place to stay in Capernaum. And I have many friends who lend us beds. And to the second, he could have said, yeah, of course, go home, bury your father. That's important. And you don't want to get out out of sorts with the rest of the family. And to the third, certainly say goodbye to your family. It's a polite thing to do. Oh, wait, no problem. But rather than trying to attract people, Jesus seems to do his best to put them off. Remember, New Year's Eve, 1986, at a beach not far from here in New Zealand, I found myself around 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night, I guess, in a tent. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And I found myself in this tent. It turned out to be a Christian cafe. And this guy came up next to me and began talking to me. And pretty soon he asked me, are you a Christian? Now, long story short is I said, I'd like to think I am. I got out of that tent and, I, and, and the first person I came across was one of my best friends at the time who was a Christian. And so I recounted the conversation to, us, to him and I said, look, this guy just asked me if I was a Christian. I said, I'd like to think I am. But you know what? I don't really think that I am. What do I need to do to become a Christian? How's that for just like having it handed to you on the plate? Big moment for my friend. Don't blow it. Here's what my friend said. You just have to be committed. I thought for years that he blew it. That was me. That was the end of the conversation. If that's what it takes, then that's it. I don't want to be a Christian. Shut the conversation down. And yet that's the kind of thing that Jesus does here in these three situations. He basically says you just have to be committed. It sounds like he blows it. There's a third thing about these responses, that they are so demanding. Jesus doesn't compare himself to the worst that life has to offer. It's not like he's saying, well, you know, don't follow the devil, follow me. He compares himself to the best. A home, a father, a family. Leave the best things and follow me, Jesus says. And we worry if we're honest about what that means for us. And the fourth thing is that while it's very easy on an intellectual level to understand what Jesus is saying, put me first, be committed to me only kind of thing, it's hard to know what that looks like in practice. Are we really to live in the kind of way that seems to be implied here? Are we really to neglect our families' responsibilities? So there's a number of things, I've chosen four of them, that seem to um, grate us the wrong way or cause us issues and problems with the way that Jesus responds. But there's a clue in one of Jesus' responses that helps us make sense of why Jesus is responding the way he is. The clue is found in verse 60. So if you want to cast your eyes on verse 60 for a moment... Jesus says to the man who wants to go home and bury his father, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. This is our clue. In Jesus's mind, someone who goes back to bury his father is dead. Now, in the Old Testament, idols are portrayed as dead. And those who trust in them are also dead. Idols have no life. Throughout the Old Testament, we build up this picture of idols. They cannot speak, they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot smell, feel, they cannot walk. Idols are nothing. They have no life. Idols are dead. And there's a few places in the Old Testament, one very clear place, is Psalm 115 verse 8, that says that those who make idols will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. In other words, those who trust in idols will have no life. They will be dead, spiritually speaking. So there's our clue. In other words, Jesus knows that this man, and it's obviously the same for all three, Jesus knows that behind these men's hearts is idolatry. Bearing a parent was a religious duty in that Jewish culture. A religious tradition, a law almost, that took precedence over all other religious duties. In other words, this man doesn't really care about his his father. What he really cares about is fulfilling his religious duty. It's become an idol for him. Jesus knows it. That idolatry is the issue here is confirmed in verse 23. Just look at verse 23 for a moment, back up and earlier in Luke chapter 9. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself or deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That word deny, put your finger on that word deny if you like, that word deny occurs only once in the Old Testament, only once. And it's in Isaiah 31 seven, And in Isaiah 31 seven and the surrounding verses, Isaiah is predicting a future day when the Messiah will come. And in that day, Isaiah says that God's people will deny themselves their idols. So you see, in calling people to follow him, Jesus is asking people to deny themselves their idols, to stop trusting in their idols, really. Think of it like this. He's basically summarizing the big point of the entire Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before me. The first of the Ten Commandments. So the next question is, what is an idol? Well, an idol is really an alternative God. It's anything that we put our confidence in to give us the same kind of things that God promises us. I'll give you a number of examples. When we trust in money to provide us with refuge. We trust money to provide refuge. Refuge is something that God promises to provide us. When we look to people's praise to give us peace, something that God promises to provide us. When we pursue success to escape condemnation. When we're always seeking the approval of others to avoid judgment. When we work long hours to justify our existence when we need a certain lifestyle to be free. Sometimes the way we speak is a giveaway to what our idols might be. I once heard someone say years ago, the gym, you know, the place where you go and exercise, is my salvation. I've also heard people say, my kids are my life. And I've also heard people say, my work is my life. Not far from where my mum and dad's tombstone is here in New Zealand, is a lady's tombstone. And on that tombstone, in other words, golf was her life. You see, salvation, life, refuge, peace, escaping condemnation and judgment, justification, freedom. These are all things that only God ultimately can provide. So when we look to everyday life, people and things to provide them, that's what an idol is. You might wonder what the difference is between an idol and something we feel deeply passionate about and care about. Well, I think perhaps we know the answer deep down in our hearts when something is an idol. But the simple answer here is that we see an idol as being essential for our happiness. You see, and I'm going to get a little bit psychological here, but idols fill up the holes in our hearts. And these holes come in a variety of ways. Let me give you some examples. For the first six weeks of my life, I was in the intensive care unit because I was six weeks premature. A 17-year-old girl had given birth to me and i was being adopted out so you think of those six weeks as a kind of transition period for me i came straight out of the womb basically um and then my birth mother she goes she you know she goes off that way and i go into intensive care for six weeks and then i meet my parents at the end of those six weeks so for the first six weeks of my life i have nothing in the way of parental contact, love, affection or connection. Now my work in the hospital I know now that they that they are onto this and they uh, would never let that kind of thing happen uh, these days that so they um, are aware of that kind of thing but but what that means theologically for me what that means what that has meant in my life is that anything that gives me love and connection, tends to be a potential idol for me let me give you some other examples someone who missed out on safety and security growing up may tend to idolize anything that is going to give them safety and security someone who missed out on affirmation and encouragement may tend to idolize anything that provides them now with that affirmation and encouragement and we could go on with many examples now i've simplified things of course but the point is that our idols aren't random they're suited we think they're suited that's why we look to them to the holes that we have in our hearts and those those holes there we all have them and they exist for various reasons. But to boil it down, to kind of make it, to simplify it, we could say that idols give us an identity. They make us feel significant. They give us meaning and value. They make us feel worthwhile. They justify our existence. Without idols, we feel we are nothing. I don't know if you've seen the movie Moana. It's an animated movie. And there's a hero in the movie and his name is Maui. And he needs this big magic hook type thing in order to become powerful. And he ends up losing this hook one day. And he says, without my hook, I am nothing. And That's an idol. In other words, without my work, I am nothing. Without my family, I am nothing. Without my possessions, I am nothing. Without without success, I am nothing. So you see, once we understand that idolatry is behind the way that Jesus is responding here, we can understand why Jesus responds the way that he does. Earlier, we looked at the four things that we may struggle with concerning Jesus responses. Well, I want to give you four things that make sense of the way that Jesus responds. First, Jesus is not being mean or harsh. He's actually being very kind. And I tell you, of all the 35 years of me being a Christian, um, it's only in the latter half that I have really um, kind of seen that. But he's effectively saying, "Let leave these idols and follow me because I'm the only one who can fill that hole you feel in your heart. I'm the only one who can satisfy that ache for security that ache for love, that ache for connection that you feel, that ache for affirmation, that ache for identity. Second, Jesus knows that idols will never do what we want them to do for us. When I was, uh, one of my former students in Brisbane uh, told me a story many years ago, he had gone to his local McDonald's that wasn't very far away from his house. Um, somewhere on the north side of Brisbane, uh, to buy an Angus burger. Since he was so close to home, he went home to open the burger. He sat down, he opened it up, he looked at it in disgust and thought, this is, this is not what I ordered, this is, you know, this is not going to satisfy me. And he went back to McDonald's and he wanted to see, he talked to the person at the counter and he said, this is pathetic. Uh this is so small, it's not even gonna it's not gonna satisfy my hunger at all. It's not what I it's not what I want. And he didn't get anywhere with the guy at the counter, so he asked to see the manager. So the manager comes out and goes through the whole thing again, and, and the man and the manager says, Look, it's got everything on the burger that we advertise. And he says and he says, Yes, but it's just it it just doesn't look like the photo. And here's what the manager said, apologies to anybody who works at McDonald's, here's what the manager said, it never does. It never does look like the photo, right? That's what our hearts do with the idols. Our hearts take a photo in our imagination of what our idol will do for us, what it will look like, what it will feel like to have this much money To have this kind of house, to live in this suburb, to have this much success, to be thought of so highly. We've got this photo in our minds of what the experience will do for us, what it will be like, but the reality never lives up to the photo. Third, Jesus knows that idols turn us into unpleasant people. We've seen this with the disciples, their refusal to understand who Jesus is has resulted in them imagining that they had power to cast out a demon when they didn't. Arguing about who is the greatest, seeing themselves as, ex- as some kind of exclusive club. And now in this passage that we're looking at today, wanting to call fire down from heaven to destroy some Samaritans who are being inhospitable. Idols will only ever, not always, but on occasion, make us irritable, angry, jealous, discontent, competitive, unhappy, and so on and so on. Jesus knows that, and he wants to set us free. And fourth, and finally, remember this is giving you four points here that make sense out of Jesus' responses. Fourth, idols erode our free will and eat away at our dignity. Effectively, idols make us into slaves. We say just one more time. I'll give up next week. I don't have to have it. I just enjoy it, we tell others. I can't let it go. I'll be so unhappy. I'll be miserable. That's why idols ultimately leave us dead. While our heart is attached to an idol, we can never be alive. Not alive in the way that God wants us to be alive. It's because our, our free will is simply being enslaved. So you see, Jesus is saying you can't trust in idols and follow me. And if you think that, that again... If you think that, Jesus would say, then you haven't understood me. You haven't understood how magnificent I am. You haven't understood how much I long to be with you. I think of the one of my favorite uh, episodes, stories, it's a parable, um, in the Bible is the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. It's uh, only a few pages away from where we are today in Luke chapter 9. And and in that parable, Jesus tells a story, and it's a story about a, um, a a young son who wants his father's inheritance. In other words, he effectively wishes his father was dead. And so the father gives him his share of the money, and the son takes off to a foreign country. Now, remember, this is a Jewish, this is a this Jewish culture, this is a Jewish audience here that Jesus has got. He's telling a story where this guy just gets black mark after black mark after black mark against him in terms of his uh, morality. He wishes his father was dead. He goes off to a foreign country. He squanders all his money on wild living and prostitutes. And then he's basically bankrupt. He's all out of money. So he goes and finds, he goes and basically sells himself to um, a, a pig farmer right? Of all things, which you meant to stay away from if you're a Jew. And he ends up working amongst the pigs, And he finally comes to the end of himself and wishes that he was back under his father's roof. He figures that even his servants have it better than what he does at the moment. And so he prepares this speech in his mind. He prepares this confession that he's going to go back to the father with. I mean, and the thing is, he does, he's not really going back because he wants to. He's just going back because it hasn't worked out for him. And he comes over the hill and he, sees, and he sees in the distance, as he looks down at the house, in my imagination anyway, he looks down the road and he sees the driveway and he sees the house and there's his father standing at the end of the driveway. Now the father hasn't been there the whole time. Obviously, he's got a life to live. He's got other things to do. But the but the point is, it's a reflective of the father's heart. The father has just been longing to see his son. Now, I think some people, some some people would be standing at the end of the driveway, just kind of just with their arms folded and 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 tapping their feet on the ground and and grumbling. And man, boy, I'm going to give it to him when he gets home. Not this father. He's just longing to see his son. And not only that, when the son goes over the hill, the father doesn't stand there and wait. The father runs, which is, of course, against all cultural etiquette of the day. The father runs out to meet the son. He just hugs him, and the and the, and the boy's just about to get his confession out, and it's, it's the father's giving orders. Go, he's telling his servants, go and get the fatted calf, go and prepare a banquet, go and invite neighbors. My son is home. He's just... Glad to see his son. He's just glad to see his son. Not asking his son to do anything. He's not he's, he's. not saying, well, now, you know, what about that apology? He's just glad to see his son. Do you see the father's heart? Do you see how full of love it is? Do you see how full of grace and compassion? And then there's an older son. This guy's got a brother. There's an older son. He, he sees this party going on and he is ticked off. And he's out he won't go in and he says to one of the servants what's going on and the servant says your your brother's come back and this guy is so angry and so the father goes out to see him and the son says to him look i have obeyed you all of these years and you've never thrown me any party and what does the father say son everything i had was yours Everything I had. Do you hear again the Father's heart? Now, the point of that is that when we hear Jesus saying to these people, follow me, don't go back and bury your father and so on and so forth, we have to understand that the same heart that is in the father of the parable of the prodigal son is Jesus' heart as well. That's Jesus' heart. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have it all together to follow Jesus. It's a journey. It will be done here soon, by the way. It's a journey, and Luke wants us to think of it as a journey. Notice the journey language in verses 51 and 57. They're heading to Jerusalem on a road. Now, they're on a literal journey. They're on a literal road. But there's no doubt that Luke wants us to also see this journey, this road, symbolically. It's Jesus's journey to the cross, and it's the journey for all who follow him. It's not a one-off decision. Remember the verse 23 said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. This is a daily thing. I think it's like we're running back into the father's arms every day, thinking of the prodigal son. Every day we're running to his embrace we're always learning to let go we're always learning to return home from the foreign country we're always growing in our appreciation of who jesus is in our appreciation of the father's heart in some ways we can think of this journey as learning to die you feel i may have actually told you this story in times past but um we had a house years ago on the Sunshine Coast, um, and all our three boys basically had, you know, two of them were born uh, when we were living in that house, and the other one was only um, 15 months old when we moved in, and we had it for 10 years, so it was a great period of life, raising a young family and all that goes with that. And then we eventually sold the house because we moved down to North Lakes um, near Brisbane. I remember standing in the kitchen one day with the real real estate agent and and one of my friends was there and he was signing papers and we were doing contracts and so forth. And I remember feeling teary um, as I thought about all that this house meant to me, because it wasn't just a house, it was a home. It was a home where we raised our three boys and, you know, just those years, for those of you who are parents, you know how special they are. And I just felt myself like I just, if I'd let myself go, I just would have cried. And I remember very distinctly at the time, it was like God said to me, came from somewhere within me, Alan, if you can't let go of this house, how are you going to let go of your life when it comes time to die? And that was a great lesson for me, really, because what it showed me is that really that is the journey. The journey is one of learning to die. To die to our idols, to die to these things that we that we trust in to provide what only God promises to provide. But it's not an easy journey. Henry Noun is one of my most favorite writers, and he describes the reality of what this journey is like. He says, following Jesus, he descri- he, he says that following Jesus um, is like being in the place of God's embrace. But, he's, but, but this is what he says. He says that this embrace is the place of light, the place of truth, the place of love. It's the place where I so much want to be, but I'm so fearful of being. It's the place I will receive all I desire, all that I ever hope for, all that I ever need, but it is also the place where I have to let go of all I most want to hold on to. That's the reality. That's the reality of this journey. There are times when we just don't want to let go. What I want to finish with is to tell you that a sermon will not help you leave your idols. Grace will. We could do a series on idols. You could get to know yours inside and out. I could share more of mine but you'll be no better equipped to turn from your idol to follow Jesus than you would have been before the series. I know this from my own experience. In 2018, I'd been a Christian 31 years. I was now back in New Zealand, a PhD, a published author, a teacher and preacher for 20 years. And yet, unable to let go of an idol in my life i was holding on to what i had been in australia and i was wanting to replicate that in new zealand i applied for 16 jobs i felt like a nobody And this despite the fact that I knew intellectually that I wasn't a nobody, that my wife would tell me that I wasn't a nobody, that former students would tell me that I wasn't a nobody, and that I knew that God didn't think I was a nobody. And yet I was experiencing the reality of what Henry Noun was talking about. My problem deep down was that without a job, I was nothing. I believed I was nothing. That I believed that unless I was making a difference in people's lives, I was nothing. That unless I was publishing, I was nothing. That unless I was feeling useful, I was nothing. In other words, more sermons on this won't help. There's only one thing that will help, and it's grace. Because grace says you're enough. You're somebody, you're loved, you're mine. Just before I left Australia, one of my students asked me to go and hear him preach. And during his sermon, he said something that hit me in a way that I never thought of before. And he said these words, he said, you know how much something is worth by how much someone is prepared to pay. Jesus purchased you you with his life. What does that say about your worth? Well, here's what it says. It says that you're somebody. That you're not nothing that you do not belong to the idols of this world, that you belong to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we reflect on your grace, as we reflect on, on your love, and we reflect on the invitation that is there before us day after day after day to follow Jesus. And we thank you, Father, for that call. We thank you because it's a call to freedom. It's an invitation to let go of the things that entangle us and enslave us. And yet we all know how difficult that is. And so we ask that the Lord Jesus might become more magnificent in our own eyes and that we might see the idols that we each struggle with in our lives, that we might see how destructive they really are.